You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. On today's show, I have former F-18 pilot turned information technology consultant, and that's Mr. Mike Stroop. Mike has demonstrated a profound understanding around the plumbing of central banks and traditional finance. And like many others, he's a proponent of what Bitcoin offers the world as a decentralized source of base money. On the show, we talk about how some of the traditional plumbing works and how fractional reserve banking has made market moves difficult for most investors to wrap their heads around. At the end of the interview, Mike and I have a little bit of fun talking about our own personal experiences as former military pilots. So this was a fun one that you won't want to miss. So here's my interview with Mike Stroop. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Here I am with Mike Stroop. Mike, welcome to the Investors Podcast, Bitcoin Fundamentals. Awesome to have you. Thank you so much. I listen to the show all the time, so really feel lucky to be on it. Thank you so much. So let's, let's dive right into it. So we have a mutual friend, Brad Mills, who was trying to do some calculations on this maturing debt bomb. And when we're looking at the interest expense that the US has, and we're just talking the US, we're not even talking other countries. And we're talking about how much this interest expense is growing as a proportion of the uh, tax revenues that are raised on an annualized basis. Brad reached out to you and you helped him through some of these calculations. Make it simple for everybody. I had some folks talk this in in past, but I think you have the ability to really kind of make things easily digestible for people. So really lay it out for them. So d- debt is just borrowing the, from the future, right? So we've we've just become very very used to it, very comfortable with it. And then the average person walking down the street, when you ask them, or if it ever comes up in a conversation, most people just assume, oh, there's those 30-year bonds, right? This, this debt that we have is just all 30-year bonds. And if the interest rates change a little bit, you know, who cares? Because it's just, it's all long-term debt, but it's not for several different reasons, partly because of market demand, partly because short-term rates are normally cheaper. I think you get this result where majority of the of the U.S. debt, the U.S. marketable treasury securities are very short term. And that, you know, when you do a simple pie chart of it, or if you just do a ladder chart, it really, really comes up. And then what you'll really see the effect of that is when we talk about the interest rates as they've gone up lately, you can see a huge change in the overall interest expense from the U.S. government just over the last six months. You know, the running 12-month total of the amount of interest they've been having to pay is has just skyrocketed because there's so much short-term debt and because there's that's just what they rely on. And side note, it's a little bit reminiscent of, of Lehman and the stuff that was happening in 06, 07, a little bit. I'm not trying to say that something like that is going to happen again, but people love to borrow short-term at super low rates and just keep rolling it and rolling it and rolling it until you know, maybe someday you can't roll it again. All of a sudden, the the yields that they were used to and got comfortable with are, are not even close to where they were at. You sent me some slides that I'm going to go ahead and project here for people that are watching this, the video version of this, they can see it. Um, make sure that you are explaining this to the folks that are just listening via the podcast. But 
you know, as we go through this, you have U.S. fiscal position here. And one of the first things that you highlight is this majority of the U.S. debt is short term. The number that I hear as far as like the duration, if you'd take all the debt and you'd kind of normalize the in the duration on it, it's around five years. Is that accurate? Or what would you say that the the average duration is for all the outstanding debt? Well, duration's a pain. Uh, duration's <laughs> funny because it, it's it's somewhat complicated. And I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of tips too much, but you have tips which change their principle based on inflation. So that'll change the duration because that's just all way out there. I think seven years, I've heard seven years is kind of typical for duration. And that's really not something you want to calculate by hand. I mean, you'll just pull up a Bloomberg or whatever and and pull that up. I think that kind of makes sense. The thing that's going to affect your duration is, is all those little interest payments along the way. So it's just a measurement of, you know, how much interest are you getting along the way? How much interest are you getting at the end, the principal at the end, that type of thing. And then, so what I did here on just a simple pie chart, I, I basically redid a chart I did a few months back. I pulled down the data from the U.S. Treasury. And this is something that should be easy to find. Like you, sh- you should be able to Google debt outstanding by a year and, and find stuff like this. But for whatever reason, it, it's, it's publicly available, but it's just hard to find. And I found it easier to just run the numbers myself. So right here on the chart is just marketable securities. So these are not U.S. treasuries that Social Security owns in their trust fund, for instance. And it just breaks it up in a pie chart by year. So between the, the next three years, you have 50% of all U.S treasury debt, including tips, is coming due within the next three years. That's crazy. So it's heavily weighted to the short term. And as they're rolling that over, and this is the point you were making earlier. So if they're rolling over half of this in the next three years, and we're dealing with these higher interest rates, things become really unaffordable really fast. Let me go to this next one here. Um, You have rising rates hit government bottom line fast, exactly what we just said. Go ahead and walk us through this one a little bit. So this is the rolling 12-month interest expense. Jim Bianco is one of the few guys on Twitter that'll kind of post this occasionally. So if you follow him, you'll sometimes see it. Um, If it's between times when he hasn't posted it, then again, that's what I found myself just running the numbers because like, man, Jim hasn't tweeted about this in a while. But you you can just pull this down again from Treasury. And, and, and run the numbers there. And it, it shows over the last 12 months, you know, how much interest has been paid. So the, the gross interest was kind of humming along at about 550 to 570 in the you know, pre-COVID times. When we had the interest rates really bottom out, those, that expense dropped to about 470 or 480 in the trough. And then from there, as we had the rate hikes, it's just skyrocketed. So the gross interest expense for the last 12 months right now is about $718 billion. We as Americans have kind of gotten used to just billions and trillions, who cares? But to put it in somewhat of perspective, the, um, the military defense budget is $750 billion, something like that. So you mm-hmm. could say, you know, it's almost like we have an extra military. And then the U.S. military, as we all know, is huge. It's the largest in the world. We spend the mo- more on it than anyone else. So we basically have two militaries of the biggest military, which is kind of interesting. And then just one little point on this is backwards looking. So even if rates just stopped right now, you would still see this number continue to go up. And then the other thing is that they're... Explain there that real a, fast, uh, Mike. Explain why that number would keep going up. 
even yeah, if so it's, it's a tw- it's a twelve year backwards look, look back. So mm-hmm. this is including September of twenty twenty one all the way through to August of 2022. Mm. So even if rates sort of, we kind of plateau with rates, you'll drop off the September month and add October and then you'll drop off. Mm. And so you'll, you'll eventually just pick up more and more months that had higher, higher rates. And because that debt is so short term. And then just one last thing, this is net interest. And so there is an important point to be made about net interest versus gross interest. So net interest is actually closer to 310 billion, but that gets in, I'm not necessarily sure that that matters so much. So it's important to keep both of those in mind. But the main, the main problem here is that as rates go up, the Fed and Treasury are in a tough situation because the more that they raise rates, the more expensive their, you know, their life becomes. Um, so it's a, it's a pickle. Let me ask you this. I'm assuming you're familiar with Luke Roman's work where he's talking about a lot of the stuff that we're seeing between Russia and the Ukraine and pretty much uh, NATO in general versus net exporters and them demanding payment in their currencies. Do you believe that they're looking at this and saying they, there's no way they can get through this without further debasement and that's why they don't want to necessarily be paid in euros or dollars. Do you buy into that thesis? Well, Luke is awesome. I have his subscription. I kind of roll off. I, I, it's a little on the pricey side. So I do a couple months and then come back later again. I mean, there, there is that wider point about certain nations no longer want to hold U.S. treasuries, Russia, China, Iran. You know, we could get into a discussion about is China holding their treasuries in a Belgian subsidiary or not? You know, how do we know? Play detectives, whatever. There's people who who push that that research, which is interesting. But I, for this particular point, I don't think that matters. For at least the short to medium term, the U.S. is the cleanest dirty shirt. So we're just talking U.S. debt, fiscal, monetary position here. You know, if you've got a choice between euros and dollars, you're going to choose choose dollars every day of the week. And so I, I don't, that kind of point you were explaining about a broader, you know, is there, is there a way to kind of for Russia put, to put a short squeeze on the U S in terms of their debt position? No, I don't, I don't really think so. At least not in the short to medium term. Gotcha. Okay. So let's go to this uh, next one that you got. It says tricky fiscal position, even with rising interest rates. And you're just laying out more of the numbers here. And there was your comment right there with the, yeah. with the U.S. being still the cleanest of the dirty shirts. Let's go to this one. Can the U.S. inflate the debt away? And your answer is no, not really. And you're breaking it out between Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and defense. Talk to us on this one. So the, the, you mentioned Luke Grom, and this is a bit of a point and sort of a pushback on his thesis slightly, which is in theory... In, in, in past history, governments have tried to inflate away their liabilities, so lessen the value of their liabilities by just inflating their currency, whether it's debasement, uh, so changing the metal, whether it's clipping the coins around the outside, all, all those kind of things that are in Savedine's book and, you know, if, if you read the Austrians or whoever. What we have in, in sort of modern times, at least in developed markets, we have a lot more inflation indexed liabilities. We have a lot more inflation indexed promises. So at the end of the day, this will be settled in, in the political context, but 
when we break down our, our three big expenses, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, a lot of those are going to be hard to, uh, to decrease those commitments through inflation. So Social Security is the worst one here. It's about $1.2 trillion. It's The benefits are fully indexed to the CPIW. It, that's very similar to the main CPI that you always hear about. How much of Social Security's overhead versus payments? I mean, I don't know, maybe 20%, maybe something. But so let's say it's, let's say it's 200 billion worth of clerical workers and, and uh, 1 trillion worth of payouts. It's probably not right, but let's say it is. No, no, no. I'm laughing because I'm thinking that's probably not right, but hold on a second. I, it probably is right. <laughs> as much I mean, who knows? <laughs> Go ahead. But the, so the, the payout that they got for 2022 was a 5.9% increase, which was right aligned with CPI. And then starting in 2023, they're probably going to get at least an 8.7% increase in their social security benefits. So if it's, at, if it's 1 trillion paid out per year, then that's another 8 billion in spending, you know, just kind of like that inflation spiral that people talk about the wage price spiral. This isn't wages necessarily, but it's a little bit, it's, you know, it's a transfer payment. People are going to take that money and go out and spend it. And the, the reason why we kind of already know what that payment is, they, they average the, um, the July, August, September inflation stats to get the payout for the next year. And it's kind of tricky how they do that. You know, elections are in November. So incumbents are smart. They, announced the new social security bump in October, mid-October to get it just a week or two before election. So everyone knows to vote for the incumbent who, who helped him out. So there's your social security there. A big portion of it is inflation indexed, which makes it hard to just inflate your currency and make the value of these promises weaker. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I think that's something that a lot of people fail to think about. And I think when you look at the defense number as well, so much of that goes into material and labor costs, which I would also imagine are extremely tied to inflation, right? Yeah. Good luck if you're going to try to get a defense contractor to eat some inflation increases. They definitely, my experience with, with military contracts was they really know those contracts and they will find a way to, if you don't specify exactly what you need, just to the letter, they will finagle their way <laughs> to say that, Hey, that wasn't in the contract. We can add that for you, but we're going to need to do a, um, an addendum contract. And you see a lot of these addendum contracts where you, you want to add one little feature, one tiny little feature, whether it's software or hardware or anything. And they find ways to, to really get you on a new contract. So any of these three, I mean, good luck trying to, to, you know, have inflation outpace uh, the increase that the, the pre-programmed, the, the legislatively required increases to these uh, payouts. So if I could just push a little further on this one, if you were to think a little adversarially, you would say, okay, the, you know, that the federal government has an incentive to somehow report a CPI that's not as bad as what it really is, or they have incentive to try to find ways to decrease these, these liabilities more than what CPI is. So I think as CPI prints come out, I think one thing I like to do is I like to go through all the little pieces Let's, and yeah, just see like, have, Hey, what's weird. You yeah. have some of this right in here. Uh, 
Hold on, let me find it. I, I saw some a chart that you had that was talking to this. Well, just the I know that it's, wasn't it. Yeah, it's somewhere in there. Um, here's here it is. There it is. Yep. So, so this isn't so. This slide here isn't so much a conspiracy about CPI because this. So we're looking at a slide here with owner's equivalent rent and how it contributes to inflation stickiness. Owner's equivalent rent has kind of been written up in the literature over the years as being a lag, having a bit of a lag. And so the, the knowing the methodology on this is kind of useful. So the, the way they, sh- so shelter is roughly one third of the CPI. It's a big, big part of it. That's probably equivalent to what most people's spending basket is. The way they measure shelter, they have rent and then they have owner's equivalent rent. And then they have, you know, a tiny bit for hotels or whatever. And the methodology for owner's equivalent rent is they just say, they just ask people what they think their house would rent for. You own a house, how much do you think it would rent for? And in past history, that has always lagged inflation because people are busy. They're not a real estate agent and maybe they don't know. And if you look at past in times of inflation increases, this, this has lagged and then continued after the rent prices actually stopped dropping just because people aren't paying attention or whatever. I would argue that it's a weird way to do the methodology in 2022 to just ask people. So I posted here the, the Zillow rent index, which a couple, after I kind of ran this, I saw a couple other people like to post charts on this too, which is cool. But you, you can see for the last year, Oh, you know, it looks like I included an extra month there. It's not 12. Uh, so tiny, tiny mistake there on my, my methodology, but I think you're going to have like an 11 or a 12% increase there on, um, on your Zillow rent index. And it, a key point on this, a lot of times when you talk to normal people, or even if, when you talk to economists, you know, they say like, Oh, 6%, 12%. That's just a 6% difference. It's not, it's double. It's a two X difference. It's a double difference. So sometimes that just gets mistaken. People talk about, Oh, inflation, let should we target 2% inflation or 3% inflation? That's not just one point difference. That's, yeah. a, that's a huge difference. So yeah, that's interesting there. Another, another thing we've, that we've seen that's really interesting, you can go and look at the, um, the statistics for automobile prices and the CPI index. And according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, automobiles have been the same price for about uh, like 30 years since the late 90s. But of course, what they're doing there is the hedonic adjustments. Mm-hmm. And we all know that that's not really true that automobiles aren't the same price, but there's lots of, there's lots of weird chicanery, you know, that happens with the CPI stats. And then of course there's no, there's very few ways that I know of, and I've, I've tried to read as much about this as I can. There's very few ways to do a hedonic adjustment up to increase the price of something. So airplane flying stinks. It's a lot worse than it used to be when you had to fly with the mask on for a whole flight and you couldn't get a drink or anything. Did the BLS, you know, bump up the the price of an airline ticket for how uncomfortable it was? No, they didn't. But what they do is for things that are easy to measure, like a a big screen TV that's 1080p instead of 720. Well, that's really easy to just throw that data in the model and then say, hey, everything's cheaper with a hedonic adjustment. So I have a real, I don't know, just one final thing on that. If you, you know, if you could buy a chair if you had a time machine, you could buy a chair from Ikea right now, or you could buy a chair made in 1910 by somebody with their hands. Which would you rather have? Like, which do you think would last longer? 
And then, you know, has there been an hedonic adjustment down and how terrible IKEA furniture is? I don't know. Probably not. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. And then it begs the question, I mean, this is something that uh, Michael Saylor, Saifedean, many have brought up this idea that inflation's a vector. If you could make up the rules for a day, how would you try to account for this? Because it's such a complex problem when you really try to pull it back and, and try to assess this. I mean, I know, how, I know what Lynn's proposal is for tracking it. I agree with that from just a, a simple way to, to keep track of it. But I'm curious how- You know, the how money you, supply? Yeah. The broad money supply really kind of being the metric and that there's lag to- it manifesting itself. Um, but I'm curious how, how you think we should go about it. There's just a, a fundamental reality that everybody's basket is different. Everybody's consumption basket is different. Maybe in a perfect world, you have a, a retiree basket, a family basket, 
college kid basket. I don't know. I mean, if we, if we really have tons of data available and we have tons of compute available, maybe that would make sense to, to have those out there as uh, it's just something to look at. I don't know if it'd be good to, to make policy off it. It's, it's just such a difficult question. And I talk about it with my friends and so forth, mostly just to make them aware of it and to just, to just pay attention to it. Because if all you do is just listen to the newspaper telling you inflation has been 1% this year, inflation has been 10% the other year, that really kind of misconstrues the reality for somebody, let's say, that's, that's raising kids, trying to pay for college. Look at the price of college over the last few decades. It's nothing but up, right? So, man, it's a, that's a really tricky problem. And I don't know if there's a right answer. You, where I get hung up on it is really kind of accounting for asset prices. Like if they're stepping into a bond market and they're buying the bonds, they're pushing yields lower. I mean, that's just simple math, right? And if we're using interest rates, I mean, look at what's happening right now. Interest rates are blowing out in the equity markets. Anything that's equity based is having to reprice itself, right? So as they're adding supply or they're reducing supply, and then it's a credit-based system. So then you have this multiple being constructed on top of the baseline money, I just it makes it so smushy and so difficult to account for all of those factors in addition to the prices of individual things in different uh, age categories and, and all of that, right? It's just super complex. So I guess that's why I just default to Lynn's you know, constant, uh, it's broad money supply over a long enough time period. Like if you're looking at the last 10 years and the broad money supply had a kegger of, Five percent. Well, the inflation rate in in very general broad brush terms is probably five percent. The tricky thing about the the broad money supply, just looking at that, and I'd like to have a chart of uh, base money and M two and M three in front of me right now, uh, just to discuss this. But the no, I'm not saying pull it out. I just oh like, no, I'm, I'm going to try to get something here. <laughs> so just. From recollection, one of the things that tricked a lot of us right after 2008 was thinking that the money that was a bailout to all the banks would mm-hmm. somehow cause inflation. Mm-hmm. And that, that really is anyone who's still saying transitory nowadays or anyone who's still saying inflation is not sticky nowadays, that's the thing they keep hanging their hat on is like, well, you know, like you can increase the money supply, but you can't necessarily, you won't necessarily, um, you know, have that hit inflation because it'll all be trapped. But part of the thing, part of the issue, what happened back then was that the new money just like solidified the banks and the huge leverage that they had. So the banks just had huge leverage, went way out beyond kind of what was prudent or where they were supposed to be. And all the new, a lot of the new money that, that we introduced sort of just made them whole. And then after it made them whole and never got spent again, never, never went out. Yes, it, we did have interest rates go lower and that did affect asset prices. We didn't have an increase, um, you know, elsewhere because it, it didn't never really hit the real economy. So the chart I have pulled up here, uh, Mike, uh, the dark blue line on the bottom there is your M sub O, your base money. And then uh, the light blue is your M2 uh, or your broad money supply. And um, you can see it goes back uh, 
quite a few decades there. You can see the massive jump that we had in the base money uh, in the 08 crisis, and you can see how they've been exercising and growing that uh, quite significantly ever since in, in a very non-linear uh, way. This, this is a log, the, the y-axis is a log scale. You can see how the broad money supply throughout all of those gyrations and the base money that we saw has been pretty, I mean, again, it's, it's a log uh, scale on the y-axis, but linear in those regards where they've been able to really kind of control uh, the broad money supply there at the, the top line until the COVID crisis where you see it really jump uh, with everything that they were doing. And this was to Lynn's point, she has an amazing article on this. Maybe we can throw it in the, sh in the show notes where uh, she talks at depth about this dynamic and how you're not going to see inflation start showing up into the prices until they start doing things that are very similar to what we saw happen here post the 2020 uh, COVID shock. But I think even if we zoom, like on linear scale, if we zoom in on what happened in 08, I think we had a huge increase, you know, unprecedented up until then. We had huge increases in M2, I, I believe. So, um, yeah, you can see the M2 did grow. So here's, here's the bump uh, here. Let me see what it is percentage wise. Through this 2008 crisis, it was up. Broad money was up 8%. In what appears to be, let me see what the time frame here is. It was up about eight percent over two hundred and seventeen days, and then <clears throat> and then it was fairly flat for like the next year, and then it continued to grow at a at a very similar pace that it had grown for decades. Yeah, I mean the to give maybe like a utopian answer. I mean it would be we we started this off kind of talking about inflation statistics and how to measure and what's more accurate. I mean, if we get to a hard money standard, then this isn't as important, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's going to be less important for people to have their, you know, to constantly be pen, paying attention to inflation, have their, you know, make sure their salaries index to inflation, that type of thing. I, I just did another measurement there on the uh, M2 post-COVID and it approximately for people listening, it's about a 40% growth in M2 over a two-year period of time, approximately. So, and when we compare we, that, I mean, we had that fiscal, you know, we had that fiscal impulse there, which was way different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that in was terms of just handing out money to people. That was Lynn's big point was just like, you know, when you mix QE with fiscal simultaneously, that's when you're going to start to see it show up in the, in the broader or the CPI gauge. And you can see like uh, you, the M2 was, was really, especially in, in the comparison to the base money. And you see how violent the base money was changing. And you look at the M2, it was really quite flat and normal considering all those gyrations that you were seeing in the base money until the COVID crisis. So let me ask you this. I mean, Luke is of the opinion and he says that he thinks that a lot of the fiscal Stimulus is going to have to be there in this next crisis that's brewing, right? Would you agree with that? Do you think that they're going to have to do more UBI-like things like they did during the, the COVID uh, crisis? I think if you are somebody that enjoys free markets, that pays attention to markets, that monitors all this stuff, we have just we have left the world of free markets long ago. Maybe it was 30 years ago, maybe 20, maybe 10. Yeah. And we've entered the world of geopolitics and 
and and domestic politics and anything that you're trading or any market you're looking at or whatever, your number one question, like as you open up a new chart or whatever is geopolitics. It's, Mm -hmm. it's like Luke talks about it's energy, it's resources, it's this and that. And I think we'll see governments continue to have no, you know, no qualms about stepping into that market, like a, like a, you know, 800 pound gorilla and just messing up whatever was there, whatever incentives, whatever, whatever the charts were doing don't matter. And, and that's just, that's just the thing I think we're going to see more and more is the, the geopolitics politics will continue to be more important. Yeah. What you were seeing in Europe, we're seeing um, in order to help with high, high inflation, high energy prices, we're going to just hand out money to to pay for it. Right now it's kind of just tough because you, it's very difficult to just snap your fingers and make a power plant. You know, the, <laughs> yeah, the problem's yeah. been, uh, the problem's been, you know, brewing for a while, but yeah, I think we'll continue to see more and more issues like that. And the, the exit valve is the currency, mm-hmm. you know, the exit valve, you know, like, like we saw with the, uh, the London metals exchange with the nickel contracts that, you know, there was a huge short on and somebody should have lost a ton of money, but the exchange just sort of paused everything. Now there's lawsuits, you know, somebody had probably had a great bull thesis there on why, you know, nickel should have gone up, but it done, it didn't matter when it comes to like the survival of the exchange or the survival of the sovereign, you know, things will be done that that may destroy markets permanently, but it kind of doesn't matter if you're just going for survival of your government, survival of, uh, you know, group of politicians. So yeah, we'll see more of that. Uh, going forward for sure. And the currencies of the exit valve, like yen, um, the euro, you'll just see those just skyrocket. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to pull up a chart here that you shared. And I really want you to make this one simple for us. Um, Because I think anytime somebody hears reverse repo, it's just kind of like, what are we talking about here? And how is it, and most importantly, how is it more relevant in a broader understanding of how the markets are functioning. If you can lay that out for us, I think people would be thrilled with hearing that simplified. Sure. Um, and, and all this stuff I post on Twitter, the, these slides, it's, it's really just publicly accessible information with a little bit of kind of like first principles behind it to try to, to try to get to some insights. There's nothing that's, you know, proprietary or something you can't get anywhere else or anything like that. But if we look at a chart of the, um, the overnight reverse repurchase, we kind of see, you know, they d- we had a little bit of that go on in 08, or excuse me, 2018. But for a while, it's, you know, even back then, it wasn't that much, maybe a couple hundred billion. And then we kind of, you know, when things are going good, nobody uses it. And since kind of mid-2021, we've seen the amount of, of that reverse, reverse repo go up to like $2.2 trillion. It's kind of hanging around at $2 trillion. Let's see. Let me make sure that I get this right. So, uh, a reverse repo is when you know money market fund or a bank or whatever when they have cash and they lend it, they they basically um, buy a bond from the treasury or excuse me from the Fed, which the Fed has, and then they sell the bond back later at a slightly higher price and they make a little bit of money. And right now, that's you know on the order of I think it's like two point three percent currently. And so the, the, um, the issue here is like, it's kind of, it's kind of weird because the, the Fed has a ton of bonds in their portfolio because of QE. And now they're like repoing these, these bonds back out to the street overnight and then bringing them back. 
it kind of doesn't make any sense, but it, I mean, we have just a huge pile of dollars, a huge pile of cash at banks and at, uh, at money market funds and so forth. And so kind of that little picture I put down there in the bottom is <laughs> my, just my little kind of thinking about the future. We have a, a ton of QE that the Fed's been doing and there's been talk about, there's plans and there's talk about quantitative tightening and we've seen a little tightening so far. Tightening being when the, when the Fed starts to sell the bond that it, the bonds that it owns. So the issue is like, well, who's going to, who's going to buy these bonds? So we have, <laughs> we have kind of like a huge, a huge cash pile of 2.2 trillion that they can buy these bonds. And that is actually buying them every night, you know, for a, for a 2.3% rate. And, and then one of the, one of the points here that I like to make is the, you know, whether we talk about this, whether we talk about interest on excess reserves, a bunch of these different programs, these rates are lower than, than some of the bond yields. Like they're lower than, let's say like a one-year bond yield, but it's overnight, right? And there's no commitment. And this is kind of like a, if you're not sure what you want to do, there's a great, a great spot to sort of kind of park your money without any duration. So the, the duration problem being as rates change and then as the bonds that you hold change in value, there's a risk there. So as rates go up or rates go down, if your bond has duration, that'll affect the value of the asset you hold. So 2.3% for a repo is pretty darn good, especially considering that the banks pay basically zero to their customers. Some money markets pay a little bit more, but yeah. So it's a, I think it's a, just a, it's a very interesting, like big pile of money that's been collected. I think in the long term that will be kind of like a standing bid for for some of the QT. I mean, but it's been very interesting to think about how slow, you know, how slow the QT roll off is. How slow should it be? You know, if it's too much, will it spook the market? Yeah. You would think that for the banks that this would be a huge boost to just their their revenues by having these interest rates coming up and, and getting that higher interest rate without having any type of risk, really. But I've seen a couple reports in the last couple of days where some of these banks are saying that they're going to have a huge hit to their net income in future quarters here. Um, are you tracking any of this? I'm just kind of curious if you're dialed in on it, because I'm not. And I, would, I saw just a couple posts on it and was trying to piece it together, but it wasn't making sense to me. No, I'm, uh, I'm not, unfortunately, not monitoring the, the banks, the U.S. banks. Okay. Um, Nothing for you there. Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. I'm still piecing it together myself. Let's go back to this slide is just a title, but I find the title really interesting. And I want to hear your thoughts on this. What, what are you saying here? You say proof of work or data center. What, is, what are you saying here? So I, I just this morning listened to your, your podcast with um, Pierre, which was great. He's he amazing. Of- so smart. So smart. <laughs> yeah, he's awesome. And uh, of course, an accountant. So that's great. That's why we and get it's along. On the to- it's that's on the, the only reason we of- get along. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the topic of, of the title of the name Bitcoin mining. So, you know, he, he put out a paper on it. There's people are kind of chattering about it on Twitter. And the, the bigger conversation here is, you know, What's the, if the name of Bitcoin mining is to change, what's the goal? Is it to make it more technically accurate? Is it to make it so that new people coming into Bitcoin understand what's happening? 
different people can disagree. I think someone like Pierre and, and Peter Todd and those, those folks kind of want it to be just, just super technically accurate about what's happening, which is fine. You know, if I was to put my shoes, if I was to put myself in the shoes of a, of a public miner in the United States right now, and I were to list, you know, the top three or so risks to my company, just not mitigated or not, just what are the risks? In that top three is definitely legislative risk due to proof of work, you know, ESG type energy use legislation. And unlike some other risks, you know, the, the risk of a fire, the risk of fraud, the risk of somebody stealing your hash and, and directing it somewhere else and taking the Bitcoin that, that you're hashing. Unlike those other risks, I, you know, I would say that that legislative risk is the one that's the least mitigated, you know, the least protected against. You can't really buy an insurance policy on that necessarily. So, my recommendations, you know, if I were in charge of the world for the name of Bitcoin mining, it would be to go just one level up in terms of taxonomy from what um, what Pierre was talking about. So Pierre was talking about, you know, timestamping, like what's actually happening on a technical level with the computers. Let's think about what data centers do. Let's think about the, the cloud, right? Data centers host stuff in the cloud. Typical things would be compute, storage, that type of thing. Now, your, your typical investor, your, your random person in Congress, do they know the difference between like an Amazon S3 bucket and Azure blob storage? No. Do they even know that, that you know, exactly what's happening in the cloud or in data centers? No. They just know that that's a building over there. It's got a ton of computers in it. It's got internet connected to it and it's got electricity connected to it. And the computers do stuff in that building. So if you're a public miner like Marathon or Riot or whoever, you're kind of a data center company. You're a data center company just like Equinix or Digital Realty. And do you do storage? No, not really. Do you do compute? Um, do you do on-command compute for, for customers, for clients? Yeah, yeah, you do. What type of compute? Well, you do a, a very specific type of compute, a SHA-256 compute, but that's what you are. And so I think that one of the biggest threats we face right now is, is the ESG threat to prove a work. Nobody kind of really seems to understand it. I would love if we could change the, the narrative and the framing of this to, to be more in line with those data centers that maybe they're hosting funny cat videos or maybe they're uh, curing cancer by folding proteins. Who knows? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. 
It's extremely durable. It has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier. And they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. Okay, so I've, I'm going to switch gears on you, Mike. This question comes from Eddie. He asked, do central banks hold reserves simply to defend the currency if needed? He said, I never understood this notion of fiat backed by XYZ assets, say gold, when the currency is not redeemable. It's just backed to sell for said currency to make it stronger or, you know, I, God, for, I, I, maybe they're doing it to make it weaker. I don't know. Uh, what, what's your take on that? Yeah. So the first thing there would be to separate it out, you know, developed market, emerging market. So, you know, reserves that, that the U S has would be, would be very different. Um, some people might say like, wait, does the U S have reserves? Um, well on their balance sheet, technically they still have some gold, which is kind of reserve, right? It's an old school reserve, but it's reserve. Now would the U S ever sell gold to defend its currency? I mean, it did in the past. It's kind of a relic of the past, but if we think more about emerging market, yeah, your typical, you know, emerging market country will hold FX reserves. And it, it depends on the, I guess, on the setup that they have. If they have a peg, then yes, they need a ton of reserves because they need to defend the peg. It's, it's sort of like the Luna, the Luna situation from crypto where you, you had to have a ton of, ton of reserves to try to defend the peg. And, you know, if it's a floating peg, if it's a floating currency, like absolutely floating currency, then yeah, I mean that, you know, in general, there's less of a need for, for those reserves in the, in the traditional sense to, to defend the currency. I mean, hopefully that answers the question. I don't know if there's anything it, deeper to it than it, that. It seems like you put it into really, maybe I would maybe quantify it as three buckets. You got the U S you have everybody else that's a developed nation, and then you have non-developed nations as far as them trying to defend their, their currency. I'm curious if you would agree with this from the U.S. standpoint, because it has such a tremendous network effect, it almost serves as it's, and you have so much dollar denominated debt, that almost provides a floor to a certain extent for its strength, as we're seeing right now with how they're, you know, they just got to tighten a little bit and it's just magnified because there's so much dollar denominated denominated debt and this massive network effect around the world. When you look at other countries and you go into the opposite side of the spectrum and you're maybe dealing with a developed nation, they have to have something tangible 
as a reserve in order to defend the strength of the currency. Obviously, debasing it is is pretty easy to do, but as far as defending its strength, they have to have something to to sell against it, right? Well, the the, the key distinction there is if they're actively trying to control that currency to a peg, or or even if it's a partial peg or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the issue with the U.S. the the network effect that you're kind of talking about. I mean, that would also be economists would call that like the exorbitant privilege, right? That yes. would be the the can't. Um, no, not the Kent. That would be the uh, Triffin Dilemma. Triffin Dilemma. Right. Yes. Yeah. Where if you have the reserve asset, you need to make enough of it for everyone else to use. And because U.S. money is basically like, in some ways, it's not even fiat money. It's like debt-backed money. We use, mm-hmm. we use, we use debt mostly to make, to make new money, to make new dollars. So there's kind of like an unlimited bid for, uh, for those dollars because it's a reserve asset. So it gives you that exorbitant privilege to just kind of run those you know, run those deficits, run those debts. And then, you know, the term people typically use is to just other places can then sterilize all that spending. So if mm-hmm. you're another country and you're kind of kept in line by the markets, you know, those bond vigilantes are, are sort of selling your bonds, making your rates go up. If your debt's too high, if you have that kind of a situation, then you can't just borrow as much as you want and, and have other people take your currency. But the U.S. has been in a pretty happy position where it's just been able to just sterilize those, those huge debts and deficits uh, because the demand, you know, the offshore demand for those dollars. How do you see the housing situation playing out here in the U.S. in the coming 12 to 24 months? This is a really popular question that I, I personally get all the time, and I just don't know that I have a good answer for people. The first point... I don't have a, a super strong position on that, but I do think I have like a maybe decent framework thinking about it. The, the first point is as investors or whoever we are, a, a lot of times people talk on podcasts about this will happen. Our job is to assess, you know, the five, six, three different paths the future could take and then think about probabilities of each of those and then set ourselves up. Okay. For each of those. And it's, it's trendy or it's cool to, to say like, oh, this will happen. Housing will drop 20%. And I, I probably in this podcast, I probably already made a bunch of calls like that where I'm saying, you know, this is going to happen. But the, the point is to, is to have a good understanding, like what, what are the possibilities for, for some different paths and, and not necessarily just pick like, oh, pretty sure housing will drop 20% by next year or whatever. So when we think about housing, the first point is, I think generals always fight the last war. Mm-hmm. I think that's very common. To, to have that recency bias and to be prepared for what just happened. I think it's highly unlikely we'll see a 2008 style crash. And I think you still have, I think you still have some, some real imbalances in terms of supply and demand in housing. A lot of the millennial generation delayed getting married, delayed having kids, that type of thing. Um, and then with COVID, you know, they finally moved out of apartments and wanted more space. So I think, we're, I think we have a pretty big structural uh, shortage in terms of housing. And I still think that's there. Now, rates are very high. Yeah, they are high. I think it's going to be a headwind for home prices in the short term. But I don't, I don't think it's likely that we'll see a major crash like we did in 08. Do you think that we're going to eventually uh, see rates come back down into these really low figures that we saw pre-COVID? 
or I, I sh- should I say post-COVID, because after COVID yeah. happened, that's when we really saw them spike down. To get kind of a pivot, I mean, this goes into the whole, like, uh, the Fed's in a quarter, they're going to have to pivot. I don't know. Neither do I. I don't, <laughs> I don't know, and I don't necessarily want to bet on it. Yeah. And I don't necessarily want to bet on the time frame of it. And, oh, man, there's a ton of stuff happening. I mean, I'm sure in Europe they want the U.S. to stop hiking rates. I'm sure Japan probably does. So there's geopolitical, some geopolitical implications from, from raising rates. You know, maybe the, maybe the Fed will be able to find like some weird novel workaround where they're able to raise rates domestically and kind of pinch off inflation here, but have some kind of way to wallet swap lines, whatever it might be to, to help out. It's, you know, it seems those, like we're at the point in this long-term cycle, right? If we go to like the Dalio long-term credit cycle, that, we're, that things are starting to break down and that that can be part of the reason why we're seeing the inflation prints that we're seeing. I mean, the, the railroad thing that, that's getting ready to play out, like what's the ramifications of that? Like all of that, all that erosion of trust that seems to be playing out right now, almost like we're, we're starting the end game and we're now like maybe in it. Like, what does that mean for prices and their ability to control their prices? And if they're using CPI and the bond market's obviously using CPI in order to, to price all the bonds that are, that are out there on the open market, how are they able to get that under control? Even if we go into a, a deep recession, you know, it, it just doesn't seem like, like it's like the previous ones. And I know the, the classic phrase this time is different, but it sure is starting to feel like there's some things that are much different than previous just business cycles that we've seen ever since we've been alive. Yeah. God, that's a hard question. The this time is different question is important. My short answer to that would be the time that it is different, it's going to look like all the other times all right up till the end. I, every, every, every stakeholder, people in power, institutions, there's major incentives to just kind of shorten your short-term thinking less and less and less to just survive one more day. Also, humans, humans are great at, uh, you know, not thinking about the, the disaster that's coming. I mean, do you, do you remember like it's the Ukraine stuff in February? Yeah, it's where, where people were you know, kind of partying in Kiev, like right before the invasion thing. And like, oh, it's just a bluff. It's just this and that. So I think that's a, that's a short answer is that we're, there's not going to be great signals to know that this time is different. We just know that structurally, like everything is set up for like Ray Dalio talked about kind of the end of a, of a dead super cycle. We know that all those, all those structures are in place and whether that kind of stuff unwinds, you know, what's the end game? Does it happen in a year? Does it happen in a few months? Does it, we get another crack up boom and it happens the next cycle. That's hard, man. That's hard to say. And that's not something that I want to bet on necessarily. I don't want to take investments or take positions betting on like, oh, it's, it's within a year, but not in four years. I just think for us, for, for Bitcoiners, we have that long-term understanding of what the end state is going to be. The path dependency is a little tricky, but I, I wouldn't set anything up for trying to call like the short-term in terms of year or so, um, it's very difficult to know like if there's going to be a pivot, if there's going to be a major a pivot in terms of the Fed and their policy. I'm, I lean towards the camp of, no, this time is different. Um, Powell, 
Powell's close to the end. This is this is last term, I think. I, I think he wants to just not be the guy that's known for for letting inflation run. I think they want to kind of keep rates pretty darn high. I don't think there's a huge incentive to to just pivot and light up another crack up boom unless it comes from those uh, those allies like we were talking about situation in Europe, situation in Japan. That would be the only thing I see changing my my view on um, kind of a crack up boom happening. Risks to Bitcoin as you see them today. Oh, it's good. There's, there's plenty of risks. A lot of them are mitigated, however. In terms of unmitigated risks, the, the main one that I see, and I'm going to get a little out over my, my technical expertise here, but it's the, and I don't know the word for this, it's the, the nation state chain tip DDoS attack with a large amount of hash power. It's that type of attack where a non-economic actor tries to kind of to DDoS to basically just send out tons of new blocks and reorgs and different things like that to just put a lot of chaos into the consensus of what the, what the heaviest chain is, what the valid chain is. That's something that I see as a little bit unmitigated. There's not much that, that's in place right now to kind of prevent that. You know, we, we had a situation where a bunch of the hash rate left China, but now you have a ton of hash rate in the U.S. And, uh, and that's was, something that I do worry about a little bit. I was shocked at how well the protocol handled that, considering, I mean, it was, it was no joke. 50% of the hash rate was just straight taken offline in a matter of, what was it, 45 days, 60 days? And... The two-week adjust, adjustment just kind of crunched through it, and you know, economic incentives sent those rigs to all over the world. Uh, a lot, like you said, here to the U.S. But you know, on that one, I I don't know. Have we, have we already checked that block as far as the the fifty percent attack uh, vector? I mean, I think it's highly unlikely. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff that has to happen in meat space to do that. Yeah, and so it's. It's a little bit like when people talk about war, you know, that have never picked up a gun and they say, well, this is going to happen and then this is going to happen and then that's going to happen. Like, okay, well, you know. It's kind of like flying an F-18 in the Top Gun movie, right? It's just like yeah, the Top Gun movie. Sure. Yeah, um, but the, <laughs> there's a lot of things that need to happen in, in real life and with physics and in order for that type of attack to happen, I, I think it's unlikely. But it's, if you ask me, like, what is the one thing that's kind of still out there? That would be the one, yeah. How terrible was the movie or how much did you love that movie? <laughs> it was a good movie. Yeah, it was an old school. Top Gun was a, it was kind of a good old fashioned action movie uh, without a, they, a they huge upgrade, agenda. They upgraded to the F-18, right? Yep. Yeah, they flew, they flew rhinos. They flew the Super Hornet. So that's the, um, the newer one. I flew the, the Legacy. So the one from the 80s. But very, very similar. Controls very similar. I've got like, I think five hours in the Super Hornet. Uh, in the front seat, so they're much, they're but. very big. Uh, the 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 size difference between the Navy and the Marines, and depending on which, it's almost like a completely different aircraft, right? The size. Well, it's it's bigger, um, has more internal fuel capacity, that type of thing. If you yeah. know what to look for, you can kind of spot the the differences. It's not that much bigger. I mean, they're both kind of pretty small fighters. But yeah, in terms of the movie, it was, it was cool to see uh, a movie with some F-18s in it. 
They did a fantastic job. So I don't know how long the production was on that, but I'll tell you one thing. When I was in Miramar in 2017 or 2018, when I was mm-hmm. still in, mm-hmm. their team came in to kind of spot locations and things like that. So they'd been working on this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, that director was there and, and all that. And it was, it was in the works for a while. They put a ton of work into it. And it's the, so the action wasn't, very accurate, but they did an amazing job of shooting a bunch of stuff in the cockpit, yeah. making you feel like you're in the cockpit. Yeah. And then the, the culture and the, the surroundings and costumes or whatever, they did a great job of that. So I don't mean like, I mean, just like the type of pen that somebody has in their sleeve. We always use these four color pens, like black, green, blue, red. And, and you always have that in your sleeve right there. And they all had those. It's just like, it was very authentic in terms of the shots. I mean, maybe the dialogue and stuff wasn't necessarily authentic. Yeah, the mission was total did. crap. Yeah, yeah. The mission was pretty pretty nuts. But they made you feel like you were yeah. you were in there, that's for sure. So if people haven't figured it out yet, we're done talking about the finance. Now we're gonna just talk about pilot stuff and yeah, so I'm I'm kind of curious just to kind of pick your brain because you know, as as a former military pilot myself. Yeah. So you went through flight school. How long were you, did you, were you in for like 10 years or what, what did you do? About 11. 11 yeah. years. Okay. So as you know, but the, the audience may not know, I mean, there's three long contracts for, for pilots in the military and yeah. uh, yeah, you do, you do all the training up front. It took about three and a half years uh, for my pipeline. And then you owe them eight years once you're done. So it's, it's a long, uh, yeah, it's a long time. That's for sure. What, how many hours did you come out with? Oh, I think about like 1300 or so. Okay. I'm not, these days I'm not flying professionally, so I don't have my, yeah. I don't keep up to date with that too much, but yeah. We're similar. So, We're similar. Yeah. I'm, I'm oh, really? a, okay. uh, yeah. I'm around, I, I'm going to say it was like 1200 or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, the joke is always, um, well, what was it for the rotary guys? It was like, they think at uh, 20 <laughs> knots ground speed or they think at 50 <laughs> knots ground speed, but, but we think at uh, 480 knots ground speed. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, we did a joint exercise over in Korea one time where we were working with the, it was with the air force. We were working a uh, joint exercise with their F-16 uh, unit where we were lazing hellfires from one aircraft and shooting them from the other than vice versa. And so we got to go up and I, I got to go up in an F-16 and experience it. And I was just like, after that flight, I was like, oh my God, I am so glad I fly helicopters. Like that is, that is like running a marathon. Like I, I think we only logged like 1.5 hours and it was like, I got out of that aircraft. Now we did air to air coming back, which was just exhausting. I felt like my brain was put in a scrambler and was just like, this is, this is out of control. You know, like the G suit was just squeezing the living hell out of me. Um, I mean, it was a, it was a really neat experience, but like very taxing on the body. Like I was not expecting it to, to be that taxing. Going straight into an F-16 is, is pretty, that's a, that's a hell of a jump. Cause they, you know, they pull some of the, or they have the capability to pull some of the most cheese. I think it's like a yeah. 9G limit, yeah. like reclining seat and all that stuff. We did, we did seven, uh, <laughs> yeah. I did like 7.1 or something like that. And I was, I mean, it just felt like your brain was going to pop. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hell of a workout. It's what, fun what, 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 uh, what did you guys, what did you guys pull five? You were probably restricted by the armament and stuff. So yeah, it depends on the weight, depends on the fuel load and different things. So you have a computer that kind of 
automatically calculates it. And yeah. then there's a, there's a G limiter switch on the very bottom of the stick. So with your kind of with your bottom two fingers, if you really need it in wartime or whatever, you can kind of pull on that thing and just yank for all your worth and go way past the G limit. But we had, it was like 7.3 was kind of the normal G limit. And then at lower fuel states, you can go higher to like 7.5. I, I accidentally pulled 8.4 once uh, when the jet was real, uh, real empty of fuel. Yeah. And it just kind of honked it on too fast. Um, but yeah, it's, Dude, it's, 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 uh, brutal. it's tough, man. Just in, I mean, you, you remember just moving your head. So that the thing is you're not pulling nine G's just right here like this. And it's not huge. You're pulling nine G's, but you know, the bad guys back there. So you're having to just like put your head in this craziest position. They'll try yeah. to look behind you. Hopefully he's not behind you. Hopefully he's right in front of you, but uh, you're having to do that. So it's, yeah, it's definitely pretty taxing you know, on the back and the neck and so forth. So. Yeah. I just remember landing and I was just like, you know, cause I've, I've done some pretty taxing things on the body through the years, just whatever. And I got out and I was just like, that was brutal. That was brutal. Yeah. And you're right. Like, uh, uh, what's neat about the rotary wing, I would say is like, we're down in the trees. So it's much more of like a roller coaster kind of feel where you have the relative velocity that you're seeing just kind of whizzing by where, you know, like on my flight, we were like, I flew with the battalion commander of the, of the squadron and the squadron commander. And, you know, we went up and we were over the LFC and he's like, all right, you want to break the sound barrier? I was like, of course. And so, you know, he, he breaks the sound barrier and there really wasn't a lot to it. I was kind of, I was, <laughs> exactly. I was, I was really kind of blown away. Like there was just like this little shutter. It got a little quieter and he's like, all right, well you did, you did that. And I was like, okay, well that was it. And, but you're not like seeing the relative velocity where in the helicopter you're going so much slower, but you're, I mean, there's a lot of relative velocity if you're, you know, flying tactically. It's yeah, just I different. Deep, I was in a debrief with a guy one time, a, a Cobra guy. So a helicopter guy. Yeah. And he was kind of talking about like how there's a bush here and a tree here. And he yeah. was just like doing this to, I had, I just, he seemed really into it and I just let him kind of go. Cause he was kind of really getting into his tree and his bush and this little hill. And he was talking about, I don't know, like a 50 meter, hundred meter kind of space that he was in for like an hour. And I was like, okay, this is, yeah, it's a different world. I got, a different I got world. kind of a, a crazy story for you. So one time um, we were, we were doing a flight, we were at Mott's, so in, in Yuma and this guy, this helicopter guy, so, um, did you ever carry sideliners on your helicopter? No, uh, okay. you, it can put them out there on the end, but we never flew in that configuration. Yeah. Okay. So the Cobra, same thing. They can put sideliners on there. Realistically, I don't know if they've ever flown like that or how often they do, but for this mission, you know, simulated loadouts, we had those and he claimed, so he's like some red force or something. He claimed that he shot down one of our F-18s. So like 10,000, 15,000 feet. And he's like, Oh yeah, you know, it's a valid shot and tone and this and that. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Like get out of here with your like valid, you know, by the book, like valid shot from your, <laughs> your helicopter, That's you know, 15,000 foot straight up. That's uh, what, hey, you know, like, you know, some of us are just a little, uh, insecure. <laughs> yeah, but it's fun. And then I, I spent some time in infantry too. So I, oh, okay. I, didn't I was know just in the back of the helicopter all the time instead of walking. I, I much preferred that. So yeah. yeah. And then it's all, then all of a sudden it's really fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then we did a ton of work with Ospreys too in the Marines. So oh, yeah, those are, are pretty nice as well. 
expensive. Um, yeah, 250 knots. Oh, yeah. You get you from here to there is a lot better than what, like 150 or so. Yeah, twice as fast, five times more expensive. <laughs> oh, that's awesome, man. That's pretty cool. I'm sure we could talk this for literally hours more, but you know, we'll we'll close it out there. I really appreciated this, Mike. You're so knowledgeable. The love the chat. The charts were awesome. And uh, give people a handoff if they want to learn more about you or they want to follow you on Twitter. Just give them a handoff to some stuff. Yeah, so I don't I don't really have anything to pitch, but one thing I was kind of hoping to talk about, just mention here real quick, is kind of having some sovereign stats, having a uh, stats, having a, a sovereign stack. So I I, I just want to kind of make the point that I think folks should be thinking about you know acquiring some Bitcoin not from Coinbase or not from someplace like that, and it's been a really good time to do that over the last couple months, like. 18,000, 19,000 prices are pretty low. Yeah, you're going to pay more if you buy like if you buy it in ATM or if you buy on BISC or wherever like that. But I'd love to really just normalize whether it's finance bros, whether it's TradFi people, whether it's, you know, cypherpunk people. I think it's really important for everybody to kind of have a little bit of that sovereign stack. Uh, that's a little bit more private. And, and who knows, maybe someday you may, you may need to use it in that kind of manner. So I'll just put that out there. That's one thing I wanted to plug. And then also like my Twitter is, uh, Mike at Mike's troop 10. So yeah, that's where I am. If you, uh, if you want to get in touch with me, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So just click on the show notes and, uh, make sure you follow Mike on amazing posts on Twitter. Some of the best charts I've enjoyed following your account. And I really appreciated this conversation and you making time. Awesome. Thanks Preston. Yeah, it was a blast. Absolutely. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So Anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.